Happy 4th of July, everybody. Um, I'm hoping that it's okay to up, to take this chance to upload an episode that highlights freedom, but unfortunately, I do not have a book or I don't seem to have access to a book that I can read that's about general American freedom, but what I have found, and I'm okay with it, and I hope y'all are okay with it, what I have found is a book that has at least a brief overview of freedom for freedom, freedom and equality for people of color. Um, it's the civil rights movement in America. And that's something that I've kind of been wanting to learn more about for some time now. I may know more about it than the average person, but I still don't think I know enough. I can never know enough about the stuff that piques my interest. Um, so in support of freedom as it really should be, freedom for people of all color, equality, let's start the show. The Movement Before Brown When most people think of the Civil Rights Movement, they picture Martin Luther King Jr. speaking at the Lincoln Memorial or languishing in a, burning, in a Birmingham jail. Yet the struggle for African-American equality began long before King was even born. The modern Civil Rights Movement began in 1954 when the Supreme Court issued its landmark ruling in Brown v. Board of Education, but no history of that movement can proceed without some reference to the events that came before Brown. With the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865, the last remaining slaves were freed, but little was done for them. After the Civil War, and especially after federal troops left the South in 1877, the freed people found themselves in a new condition of economic slavery. With neither land of their own nor the skills to survive in an urban economy, most had no choice but to remain agricultural laborers on the same plantations that they had once worked as slaves. Racial segregation also became a burden. Although it had never been rigidly observed in the antebellum South, it was elevated after the war to the status of a long-standing Southern folkway, which whites used to justify the passage of Jim Crow laws further restricting black opportunity. Jim Crow was the name of a stock character in 19th century minstrel shows, and it gradually became a racial epithet. In search of relief, many African Americans turned to the accommodationism being preached by Booker T. Washington. According to Washington, blacks needed to accept their political humiliation and look beyond it to economic advancement. Middle-class accommodationists considered political agitation both futile and needlessly confrontational. A much more prudent course, they thought, was to forego their political rights, at least temporarily, in favor of material self-improvement and the cultivation of white goodwill. The resulting gains would eventually allow in people of color to claim the same citizenship rights as whites, or at least that was the plan. Of course, not all blacks thought like Washington. W.E.B. W. Dubois notably castized the accommodationists for abandoning black political rights and urged African Americans to complain loudly and insistently because persistent manly agitation is the way to liberty. In 1909, Dubois helped found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, which quickly became the nation's leading civil rights organization. 
The roots of the Civil Rights Movement go all the way back to Reconstruction, with Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois emerging, emerging as the two major leaders. The NAACP's Legal Strategy in 1953, Charles Hamilton Houston, dean of the Howard University Law School, took a leave of absence to become the NAACP's first chief counsel. Since its founding in 1909, the NAACP had occasionally hired lawyers to defend people of color unjustly accused of sensational crimes. Houston, however, had little interest in such criminal work. He wanted instead to develop civil cases that could gradually undermine the legal basis for racial segregation. Segregation was legal in 1935 because in 1896 the Supreme Court had ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson that racial separation was not inherently discriminatory. As long as equal accommodations were provided, the practice was constitutional, the court said. Houston's plan was to attack this separate but equal doctrine by demonstrating that blacks were not being treated equally. Focusing on public education, Houston brought cases against southern school districts that paid black teachers far less than their white counterparts. He won many, but each decision applied only to the school district being sued. Also, raising the pay of black teachers didn't eliminate the vast inequalities of the South's segregated education system. Well-funded schools for whites, poorly funded schools for blacks. Following Houston's return to private practice in 1938, the NAACP appointed a new chief counsel, Thurgood Marshall, who adopted a new legal strategy. While Houston had focused on the equal and separate but equal, Marshall attacked the separate, arguing that racially segregated facilities could never be equal. He began by suing school systems that provided graduate-level education for whites but none for blacks. His point was not merely that such arrangements were unequal. More importantly, he argued that the opportunities available at white professional schools, such as networking, could never be matched at segregated black schools. During the litigation of Sweat v. Painter, 1950, the state of Texas offered to build a new law school for blacks rather than admit him rather than admit Heman Sweat to the segregated University of Texas. Marshall won the case by persuading the court that an all-black law school, no matter how well-funded, could never match the advantages available at the existing school. Marshall's victory, however, was incomplete. He had hoped that Sweat v. Painter would set a precedent he could use to desegregate undergraduate, secondary, and even elementary education. But the court wouldn't bite, explicitly limiting its opinion to graduate education and leaving Plessy the law of the land. The NAACP decided to attack the separate but equal legal basis for segregation, with Houston first taking on equal and Marshall then going after separate. The Brown Decision. The court's narrow decision on Sweat v. Painter left Thurgood Marshall with a difficult choice. Should he bank his winnings or go for the big payoff? Bringing more pressure to bear might finally force the court to reverse Plessy v. Ferguson, but such an effort could also fail, resulting in a decision that reaffirmed segregation and condemned yet another generation of African Americans to the oppression of Jim Crow. 
Despite advice to the contrary, Marshall decided to move strongly ahead. Again, the terrain would be public education. Seven-year-old Linda Brown lived in Topeka, Kansas. Every day, she had to cross the tracks of a railroad switching yard to reach the bus that took her to a segregated elementary school on the other side of town. Her father, Oliver, decided to sue the school district because he couldn't bear the risk to his daughter when a perfectly good public school, albeit one for white children only, operated within safe walking distance of his home. Oliver Brown's NAACP lawyers emphasized new sociological evidence that made clear the harm being done to black children by segregation. The lawyers cited most famously a doll test used by psychologist Kenneth B. Clark to measure children's self-esteem. Clark had shown a group of black children dolls made from the same mold and dressed alike, but with different skin colors. He then asked the children to pick out the nice doll, the doll that looks bad, and so on. The results showed that black children consistently associated the white doll with good and the black doll with bad. In other words, Clark's test showed that segregation produced in black children a sense of inferiority that, undermi that undermined their self-esteem. On May 17, 1954, Chief Justice Earl Warren read the Supreme Court's unanimous decision in Brown v. Board of Education. Does segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race, even though the physical facilities and other tangible factors may be equal, deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities, Warren asked. We believe that it does. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. In arguing Brown, Thurgood Marshall used new sociological evidence to persuade the Supreme Court that separate could never be equal. The Murder of Emmett Till It took the justices of the Supreme Court a full year to decide how Brown v. Board of Education would be implemented. Not until May 1955 did they settle on a gradual approach, using the intentionally vague phrase with all deliberate speed. Because of this timidity and the emergence of a Southern backlash to Brown, another 15 years passed before meaningful school desegregation began in the South. The successful resistance to Brown has led some scholars to belittle the court's decision and instead credit the mass protests that followed with forcing the South to integrate. Yet such an argument misses the point that Brown changed the way young African Americans thought about themselves and the world. Whites might still treat them unfairly, but after Brown, such treatment was no longer legal. Legal, an important distinction. Another event that changed the way young blacks thought about the world was the August 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till. The killing took place in Mississippi, indisputably the most racist southern state. When Till, acting on a dare, whistled at a white woman in the small town of Money, everyone but the Chicago-born 8th grader knew that there would be trouble. Because Till wasn't a Southerner, he was only dimly aware of the strict code governing race relations in Mississippi. His uncle Mose Wright, whom Till was visiting, told the white men who came for the boy a few nights later that Till hadn't known what he was doing. But Roy Bryant, the woman's husband, and J.W. Millam, her brother-in-law, didn't care. They took Till away, and the next time Wright saw his nephew was three days later, when his mutilated corpse was pulled from the Tallahatchie River. Oh, that's sad. 
Newspaper accounts inspired national outrage at the brutality of the murder. Even so, white Mississippi lined up dutifully behind Bryant and Millam. It took the all-white jury just 67 minutes to return a not guilty verdict, and it would have taken even less time, one juror said, if we hadn't stopped to drink pop. That's disturbing. Sorry, that's my own comment. That's, that's just wrong. John Lewis was just 17 months older than Till. Five years later, as a college student in Nashville, Lewis became a leader of the emerging sit-in movement. According to Lewis, Till's murder, Till's murder galvanized the country. A lot of us young black students in the South later on, we weren't sitting in just for ourselves. We were sitting in for Emmett Till. Although there was successful resistance to Brown, the decision nevertheless altered the worldview of young blacks, as did the murder of Emmett Till. The Montgomery Bus Boycott The Jim Crow laws that dominated Southern life extended well beyond public education. In Montgomery, Alabama, for example, Chapter 6, Section 10 of the City Code required public bus companies to provide equal but separate accommodations for white people and people of color. But these accommodations were hardly equal. People of color were allowed to sit only in the back of the bus, and they often had to get up so that white passengers could sit. On the evening of December 1, 1955, 42-year-old seamstress Rosa Parks boarded a Cleveland Avenue bus at a stop near the department store at which she worked. Two stops later, the bus driver noticed that a white man was standing, so he ordered a row of seated black passengers to give up their seats and move farther back, even though the rest of the seats in the crowded rear of the bus were taken. When Parks refused, the driver called the police and had her arrested. The African-American community responded on Monday, December 5th, with a one-day bus boycott that proved 90% effective. Ooh, December 5th. Isn't that Walt Disney's birthday? I think, I think it is his birthday. At a mass meeting that night, it voted to continue the boycott until three demands were met. Greater courtesy to black passengers, the hiring of black bus drivers, and first-come, first-served seating, the, and first-come, first-come, first-come-first-served seating, the bus company refused. To manage the boycott, the city's black leadership, many of them Baptist ministers, formed the Montgomery Improvement Association, MIA, choosing as its president the 26-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. The MIA raised funds, sponsored weekly mass meetings to keep up morale, and organized a carpool system that carried thousands of people to work each day. Montgomery's white authorities tried everything they could think of to crush the boycott, including harassment, arrests, and even a hoax, announcing that the boycott had been settled to trick black riders back onto the buses. On January 30, 1956, King's house was dynamited. No one was hurt, but the MIA responded with a federal lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of bus segregation. In November 1956, the case reached the Supreme Court, which upheld a lower court ruling prohibiting the segregation. The year-long boycott ended on December 21, 1956, when blacks returned to the buses and took seats in the front rows. The Montgomery bus boycott sought an end to segregation through direct mass political action. Martin Luther King Jr., known to his closest friends as Mike, 
first became acquainted with the strategy of passive resistance during his undergraduate years, 1944 to 1948, at Morehouse College in Atlanta. An indifferent student at Morehouse, King nevertheless followed closely the nonviolent struggle of Indian leader Mohandas K. Gandhi to win independence from British rule. Even so, he was never the Gandhian that many journalists made him out to be. His interest in nonviolence was rather that of a Christian pacifist, always rooted in the biblical directive to match hate with love. When the Montgomery bus boycott began, King had been pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church for less than two years, and his wife, Coretta, had just given birth to their first child. For these reasons, King's election as MIA president caught him unawares, he explained. It happened so quickly that I did not even have time to think it through. It is probable that if I had, I would have declined the nomination. Yet King's performance at the first mass meeting on December 5, 1955 was mesmerizing. Although he never raised his voice, he preached as though he wanted to shout, and this made his voice sound electric. You know, my friends, he told the standing room only crowd, there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time, my friends, when people get tired of being flung across the abyss of humiliation, where they experience the bleakness of nagging despair. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amidst the piercing chill of an alpine November. We are here this evening because we're tired now. The bus boycott began without King and would have continued without him, but his leadership was nonetheless irreplaceable. Without it, the boycott would never have become the truly mass movement that it did. There was no other leader with the humility, with the education, with the know-how of dealing with people who were angry and poor and hungry, one MIA insider recalled. Certainly the media, with its insatiable appetite for personalities, singled King out and highlighted his role, but the attention was justified, and King's importance was not lost on the civil rights movement's white antagonists. Martin Luther King Jr. was at first a reluctant leader, but the role fit him so well that he quickly became both indispensable to and inseparable from the movement. Integrating Little Rock. Today, it's fairly easy to see that the momentum of history favored civil rights. But government leaders of the 1950s had to act without such hindsight, and this made the choice between moral leadership and political opportunism much more problematic. At the time, Arkansas was considered a racially moderate state because it seemed to have taken desegregation in stride. The University of Arkansas had voluntarily admitted its first black law student in 1948, and the Little Rock bus system had also been integrated without incident. After Brown, the Little Rock School's superintendent announced without much fanfare that token integration would begin at Central High School in the fall of 1957. Like President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Arkansas Governor Orval Faubus had been content after Brown to let others tackle the thorny desegregation issue. During his 1956 re-election campaign, however, Faubus realized that the political winds were shifting toward the segregationists, and he decided to shift with them. On Labor Day 1957, he called out the Arkansas National Guard to cordon off Central High and block the admission of the first black students known as the Little Rock Nine. 
Although Faubus's action defied a federal court integration order, Eisenhower remained silent, hoping that the crisis could be resolved without his intervention. He thought that Faubus, having made such a dramatic gesture, would now withdraw the troops and blame Central's subsequent integration on the federal government. In fact, Faubus did remove the guard after federal judge Ronald Davies issued another order on September 20th, but the withdrawal didn't end the crisis because a violent mob of enraged segregationists quickly took the guard's place. Although the city police did manage to sneak the Little Rock Nine into school on Monday, September 23rd, the students had to be evacuated when the crowd outside threatened to overrun, to overrun the building. Later that day, state NAACP President Daisy Bates announced that the students would not return to Central until Eisenhower personally guaranteed their safety. The next morning, Little Rock's mayor sent the president a telegram formally requesting federal troops. By this time, Eisenhower had no choice. He ordered 1,000 soldiers of the 101st Airborne and used these troops on the morning of September 25th to disperse the mob at bayonet points so the Little Rock Nine could attend classes. The segregationists called it an invasion. Resistance to school integration in Little Rock, especially the violent defiance of a federal court order, forced a reluctant President Eisenhower to send in federal troops. Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam in the South, nonviolent church-based organizing made sense because most of the prominent civil rights leaders were Christian ministers with deep roots in the pacifist tradition. Up north, however, conditions were different. Many blacks living in urban ghettos were neither ideologically nonviolent nor Christian, and they sought a different path. Malcolm Little was six years old when his father was run over by a streetcar under mysterious circumstances. Eight years later, after his mother was declared insane, 14-year-old Malcolm was placed in a series of foster homes. At 16, he became a pimp, drug dealer, and petty thief in Boston. At 20, he was sent to state prison, where, be he, where he became a member of the Nation of Islam, NOI. Also known as Black Muslims, NOI believers followed the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who said the white man was the devil and urged blacks to separate themselves from whites in order to save their souls. When Malcolm emerged from prison in August 1952, Muhammad gave him the new surname X to represent the lost surname of his African ancestors and sent him to Harlem, where Malcolm charismatically proclaimed the divinity of the black man and predicted the impending destruction of the blue-eyed white devil. Quickly, he became the second most powerful NOI leader and Muhammad's heir apparent, although he remained largely unknown outside the black community. Then in 1959, a sensational television documentary, The Hate That Hate Produced, introduced Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam to a shocked national audience. The resulting publicity made Malcolm a national figure, and white reporters began hounding mainstream black black integrationists to state where they stood on the issue of black supremacy. In the meantime, Malcolm's growing fame was making Elijah Muhammad jealous. In December 1963, Muhammad silenced Malcolm for making disparaging remarks about the late President Kennedy. 
Three months afterward, anticipating his expulsion, Malcolm quit the nation and began moving beyond the NOI's black-white dualism to embrace a more humanistic vision of the world. As Malcolm moved farther and farther away from NOI orthodoxy, the rift grew worse, and in February 1965, Malcolm, now El-Hajj El Malik El-Shabazz, was killed by NOI assassins at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem. Through its spokesman, Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam rejected the, rejected the integrationist agenda of the King-led civil rights movement and vowed to meet violence with violence. The sit-ins. The generation that built the NAACP saw the 1954 Brown decision quite correctly as the culmination of decades of patient legal block building. Not so the children of that generation, mere adolescents at the time of Brown, who considered school desegregation an obvious call and lacking historical perspective expected many more changes to follow. Five years later, as these young adults settled into college, they found themselves staying up late at night discussing why so little had changed. The idea of racial segregation seemed almost silly to them. What sense did it make for people of color and whites to go to school together and ride buses together but not eat together in restaurants or drink from the same water fountains? Ezel Blair Jr., Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, and David Richmond entered North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College as freshmen in the fall of 1959. They became, they became fast friends, ate together, studied together, and talked together about whatever was on their minds. After watching a television show on Gandhi's use of nonviolence to achieve his political ends, the four classmates decided to visit a downtown Greensboro lunch counter where, by custom, people of color weren't served. On February 1, 1960, they bought some toiletries at the, Woolworth, at the Woolworths on North Elm Street, sat down at its lunch counter. There's a real Elm Street? Uh, that's a little bit creepy. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a horror fan, but not a fan of Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, sat down at its lunch counter and nervously ordered coffee. Although the waitress refused to serve them, they remained in their seats until closing time in protest. Word spread quickly, and before the freshmen returned to the A&T campus, students were there already talking about what they had done. The next morning, they led a group of 27 A&T students back to the Woolworths, where, observed by several members of the local press, they sat in again. Day by day, the sit-in movement expanded, first throughout Greensboro, then across North Carolina, and finally, within just two weeks, across the entire Upper South. The sit-in movement demonstrated that young blacks could protest effectively without the guidance of older leaders, and it led directly to the April 1960 student conference at Shaw University, where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, was founded. Youth moved to the forefront of the civil rights movement when college students began sitting in at whites-only lunch counters in the South. The Freedom Ride As President John Kennedy took office in 1961, civil rights was not on his agenda. He and his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, personally supported the cause, but they were much more concerned with foreign policy and were willing to let racial justice develop slowly. 
James Farmer was not. As National Director of the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, Farmer was well aware of the December 1960 Supreme Court decision in Boynton v. Virginia outlawing segregation in interstate bus travel. Nevertheless, white and colored signs remained in place above waiting room doors throughout the South. To compel federal action, Farmer organized the Freedom Ride. His plan was to send interracial volunteers on a bus trip through the South, during which they would exercise their rights under Boynton. The 13 original Freedom Riders left Washington, D.C. on May 4, 1961 in two buses, one a Greyhound and the other a Trailways. The whites sat in the back of each bus, the people of color, the blacks, in the front. At each stop, the Freedom Riders ignored the white and colored signs, and in the Upper South, at least, the locals ignored them. On Mother's Day, May 14th, however, the Greyhound bus carrying half of the Freedom Riders from Atlanta to Birmingham passed through the Ku Klux Klan stronghold of Anniston, Alabama, where a mob of angry whites broke the bus's windows, slashed its tires, and when the bus was forced to pull over, firebombed its interior. Meanwhile, the Trailways bus carrying the other half of the Freedom Riders reached Birmingham unscathed, but its passengers were attacked in the terminal building and severely beaten. There were no Birmingham police present because city officials had promised the Klan 15 minutes alone with the Riders. President Kennedy first learned of the Freedom Ride when a story about the attacks appeared on the front page of the next day's New York Times. The last thing he wanted was well-publicized racial violence in the South, which the Soviet Union could use to embarrass the United States, its Cold War foe. Kennedy was also eager to avoid what he called the Little Rock Method. He wished the matter would simply go away, but as Farmer had intended, the publicity forced a reluctant government to act. Meanwhile, the small, dramatic vanguard action that was the Freedom Ride so inspired part-time student activists that many left school to become full-time SNCC organizers. While putting the Kennedy administration to the test, the Freedom Ride dramatized Southerners' violent determination to flout federal law and retain segregation. The Integration of Ole Miss The Kennedy administration's reaction to the Freedom Ride set a pattern Freedom Ride set a pattern for its future behavior with regard to civil rights. The president did everything he could to keep the issue from hijacking his Cold War agenda. He cajoled the parties involved, threatened them, and even made secret deals with them. But when pressed, he ultimately enforced the law, albeit with reluctance. Kennedy's most difficult racial crisis came to a head in September 1962, when a federal court ordered the immediate admission of black student James Meredith to the all-white University of Mississippi, known as Ole Miss. On September 13th, on September 13th playing to Mississippi's segregationist electorate, Governor Governor Ross Barnett announced that he was ordering the university to defy the federal court order. Barnett's rhetoric was all show, however, because he was at the same time conducting secret talks with the Kennedy administration. 
Both sides understood that Meredith would have to be enrolled, and each had its own reasons for wanting to minimize the political consequences. The sticking point was the federal show of force. The president wanted to appear to be using minimal force to fulfill his constitutional obligations, while Barnett wanted Meredith to be admitted at federal gunpoint so that he could maintain his charade of defiance. Barnett held out too long, however, forcing Kennedy's hand. By Sunday, September 30th, the college town of Oxford was in a state of near hysteria. Klansmen were arriving from all over the South to defend white supremacy, and radio stations were counting down the hours until Monday, when Meredith was to be registered and bloodshed seemed likely. Barnett and Kennedy thought they could avoid violence by registering Meredith unexpectedly on Sunday night, and Meredith was brought to the campus about 6 p.m. for that purpose, but an angry crowd gathering in front of the administration building to threaten the federal marshals there, marshals there made that plan impossible. Racial slurs such as, Marshall, where's your wife tonight? Home with a N-word? Escalated into brick-and-bottle throwing. Federal vehicles were overturned and set on fire, and soon there was gunfire. One marshal was hit in the leg, another was shot in the neck. Permission to fire back was refused by the president, who didn't want further escalation. But the rioting proved impossible to ignore, and eventually Kennedy had to send in 16,000 federal troops to restore order. Just as Eisenhower did in Little Rock, President Kennedy found in Mississippi that he had no choice but to respond to white violence with federal force. Project C During the summer of 1962, Martin Luther King Jr. suffered his worst setback yet. The desegregation movement that he had joined in Albany, Georgia ended without achieving any of its goals. Cleverly, Albany's police chief, Lori Pritchett, had studied King's methods, as well as Birmingham's response to the Freedom Ride, and concluded that the best way to counter nonviolence was to be non-brutal. He arrested and jailed hundreds of demonstrators, but allowed no beatings and thus avoided federal intervention. The lesson King learned was that in the absence of violence, the federal government would not act to protect uh, people of color's civil rights, nor would the American public pay much attention. After a lengthy internal debate, King decided that his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, would need to raise the stakes. He targeted Birmingham because he knew that its ruthless public safety commissioner, Eugene Bull Connor, would likely react with such outrageous brutality that public opinion would shift King's way. The campaign began on April 3, 1963, but languished until early May when James Bevel suggested that Project C for confrontation enlist the children he had been training in nonviolence workshops. Adults had proven increasingly reluctant to risk arrest and the loss of their jobs, but a boy from high school has the same effect in terms of being in jail, in terms of putting pressure on the city as his father, Bevel told King. The Children's Crusade began on May 2nd. At first, Connor wasn't sure what to do with the youngsters, some as young as six, but he eventually decided to arrest them, imprisoning 600 in a makeshift jail at the local fairgrounds. The next day, another thousand marched. With no place to put these additional children, Connor ordered them dispersed rather than arrested. 
His firemen trained hoses on the marchers, and when some refused to yield, the firemen turned up the pressure until the jets of water lifted marchers off the ground. Angry parents began throwing rocks and bricks at the firemen, prompting the police to loose German shepherds on the crowd. That night, network news programs broadcast footage of the violence, and instantly white and black Americans all over the country unified behind King. According to Kennedy aide Arthur Schlesinger, even the president was persuaded that he would now have to take on Southern intransigence with regard to civil rights. With the movement flagging, King decided to risk everything on a confrontation in Birmingham, betting that the local authorities wouldn't be able to resist violence. The March on Washington Before the Project C demonstrations, President Kennedy didn't want to introduce new civil rights legislation because he was sure that no bill would pass and he didn't want to needlessly antagonize Southern Democrats whose support he needed in Congress. The violence in Birmingham, however, changed his mind, and on June 11, 1963, in a nationally televised speech, Kennedy announced his intention to introduce a new equal accommodations bill. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it, the president said, and we cherish our freedom here at home, but are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free except for the people of color, that we have no second-class citizens except people of color, that we have no class or caste system, no ghettos, no master race except with respect to people of color? Meanwhile, labor leader A. Philip Randolph had begun, had begun planning a massive march on Washington to focus national attention on civil rights. The last thing that Kennedy wanted was tens of thousands of demonstrating people of color roiling the waters of Congress, but when Randolph, supported by Martin Luther King Jr. and James Farmer, refused to call off the march, the president had no choice but to cooperate in order to maximize his influence on the plans being made. Administration officials, who were quietly channeling hundreds of thousands of federal dollars into the event, were able to persuade the organizers to hold the march on a weekday, specifically Wednesday, August 28th, so that most of the marchers would have to come late and leave early, not being able to take two days off work. They also arranged for the rally to be held at the Lincoln Memorial, conveniently surrounded on three sides by water and thus ideal for crowd control. As it turned out, of course, the quarter of a million marchers couldn't have been more orderly. The last orator of the day, King, mounted the speaker's platform shortly before 4 p.m. Like the others before him, he had agreed to limit his remarks to seven minutes, but in the end, King ignored this commitment and spoke for 19. I have a dream, he said. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Martin Luther King Jr. organized a vast interracial coalition to pressure Congress into passing President Kennedy's new civil rights bill. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 Although dramatic and inspiring, the March on Washington had little effect on the congressmen then at the heart of the civil rights debate. 
The House Judiciary Committee approved the administration's civil rights bill, which ended discrimination in public accommodations such as restaurants on October 22, 1963, but thereafter the bill languished in the Rules Committee chaired by Howard Smith, a Virginia Democrat strongly opposed to integration. Smith was still sitting on the bill a month later when President Kennedy was shot in Dallas. When Lyndon Johnson became president, he made the stalled civil rights bill his top priority. Johnson badly wanted to remain in the White House after the 1964 election, and he knew that to do so, he would have to win over the Democratic Party's powerful liberal wing. Passing the martyred president's civil rights bill would, he calculated, do just that. Johnson could never match John Kennedy's oratorical skill, nor his ability to inspire people, but as a legislator, he was without peer in 20th century American history. He knew that his first task was to get the bill out of the Rules Committee, which he hid by criticizing by criticize, which he did by criticizing Howard Smith for his refusal even to hold hearings. This pressure forced Smith to schedule nine days of hearings, after which the politics of the bill became impossible for Smith to control. On January 30th, H.R. 7152 was voted out of committee, and 11 days later it passed the House 290 to 130. The key figure in the Senate turned out to be Minority Leader Everett Dirksen, an Illinois Republican who supported civil rights but was troubled by the bill's enforcement provisions, which he considered a federal overreach. The bill can't pass unless you get Ev, Dir Ev Dirksen, Johnson told Majority Whip Hubert Humphrey. You get in there to see Dirksen. You drink with Dirksen. You talk with Dirksen. You listen to Dirksen. A compromise on trial by jury language resolved Dirksen's concerns. In the meantime, however, Richard Russell of Georgia began a filibuster on March 9th that became the longest in Senate history, climaxing on June 9th with a 14-hour monologue by Robert Byrd of West Virginia. Byrd's night-long performance was the South's last gasp. Less than an hour after he finished, Humphrey won the cloture vote, and on July 2nd, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed Jim Crow segregation in the South, might have been John Kennedy's bill, but it was Lyndon Johnson's law. Freedom Summer Martin Luther King Jr.'s shrewd manipulation of his personal fame greatly extended the reach of his minimal staff, but the SCLC never did put many boots on the ground. In general, the foot soldiers of the movement worked for SNCC, especially in Mississippi where Robert Moses ran the show. A young mathematics teacher from New York City, Moses typically kept himself in the background while encouraging others to become empowered. As King traveled the country holding press conferences and leading marches, Moses remained in Mississippi, methodically building his organization county by county. The repression was brutal, so the work went poorly. After King's triumph in Birmingham, Moses became particularly aware that for a breakthrough to take place in Mississippi, he needed to attract some, ma some national attention. 
He was searching for an idea when Allard Lowenstein, a 34-year-old New York lawyer, gave him a call on July 1963. In July 1963, offering to recruit northern white student volunteers. A successful pilot project in the fall persuaded Moses and Lowenstein to propose, to propose a broader Mississippi summer project for 1964. Some SNCC staffers opposed the move, arguing that importing inexperienced white students would undermine SNCC's primary mission to empower local blacks. On the other hand, the many benefits of the idea included free labor, financial support, and national attention. In the end, the decision was made to go ahead with Freedom Summer. The primary goal was to challenge the legitimacy of the all-white Mississippi Democratic Party by expanding black voter registration, organizing a new integrated Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, MFDP, and sending an MFDP delegation to the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City to supplant the white regulars. When the MFDP delegates arrived in Atlantic City, however, they found the Northern Party establishment lined up against them. Not wanting the MFDP challenge to spoil his coronation, President Johnson used his considerable influence to impose a compromise. Each Mississippi regular would have to sign a loyalty oath before being seated, while the MFDP would receive two at-large seats. Deeply disappointed, the MFDP members refused to take these leavings from the table. Never again, wrote one SNCC organizer, were we lulled into believing that our task was exposing injustices so that the good people of America could eliminate them. We left Atlantic City with the knowledge that the movement had turned into something else. After Atlantic City, our struggle was not for civil rights, but for liberation. The student movement recruited volunteers to spend the summer of 1964 in Mississippi organizing a challenge to the exclusively white state Democratic Party. The Selma to Montgomery March after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, Martin Luther King Jr. quickly turned his attention to voting rights. President Johnson wanted to wait before introducing a bill, complaining to King that, that the country was tired of civil rights. But the SCLC leader wouldn't wait, deciding to force the issue in Selma, Alabama, where only 1% of eligible blacks were registered. King chose Selma for the same reason he chose Birmingham. Like Bull Connor, Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark was rednecked, overbearing, and quick to lose his temper, the sort of man who could be counted on to resort to violence. Selma's mayor favored a Lori Pritchett-style approach to the SCLC protest marches, which began on, Janu on January 18th, but the sheriff couldn't control himself. After just one day, he began manhandling the demonstrators, assaulting a few of them and arresting hundreds. Racial tension in Selma gradually escalated until February 18th, when state and local police attacked a group of marchers in nearby Marion. While panicked demonstrators fled, Jimmy Lee Jackson stopped to help his beaten, bleeding grandfather. Several state troopers followed them into a local cafe, where one trooper attacked Jackson's mother. As the 26-year-old Army veteran leaped to her defense, another trooper shot him in the stomach. 
At Jackson's funeral, an emotional James Bevel proposed that the body be taken to Montgomery and placed on the steps of the state capitol to confront the governor with the evil being done in his name. Although he... Although the idea of transporting Jackson's casket was soon dismissed, the larger goal of seeking redress took hold, and on March 3rd, the SCLC announced a five-day march from Selma to Montgomery. When the first marchers crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Sunday, March 7th, now known as Bloody Sunday, they were met by a phalanx of state and county police who used clubs and tear gas to literally beat them back. King wanted to try again on March 9th, but a federal court order held the march up until March 21st. Meanwhile, on March 15th, President Johnson sent a strong voting rights bill to Congress. Supported by public opinion and the many liberal Democrats elected on LBJ's coattails in 1964, the bill became law on August 6th. In November 1966, with more than half of Selma's eligible blacks now registered, Jim Clark was voted out of office. With the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the movement turned its attention to voting rights, which became a pressing national issue after Bloody Sunday in Selma. Black Power the Selma to Montgomery march, like the civil rights movement itself, is generally remembered for its nonviolence. But the specter of violence was never too far away. As marchers passed through deeply racist Lowndes County, for example, they acquired a federal escort so that Lyndon Johnson could be sure none were shot. Accompanying the column were SNCC organizers Stokely Carmichael and Bob Mance, who wrote down the names and addresses of locals brave enough to cheer the marchers on. A few weeks later, they returned to the county with more SNCC organizers to begin the work of registering black voters. Although a SNCCer since 1961, Carmichael generally spoke for the newer, younger, more militant staffers who respected John Lewis's courage but considered his willingness to be beaten foolish or even worse, an anachronism. Recent killings of civil rights workers in Mississippi and Alabama had, ca had cast doubt upon the efficacy of nonviolence, and when Jonathan Daniels, a white seminary student volunteering with Carmichael, was murdered in August 1965, the Lowndes County team made two decisions. They would no longer accept white volunteers, and they would henceforth arm themselves. By May 1966, when SNCC's national staff met for the annual leadership election, the questioning of nonviolence had spread to the point that it imperiled John Lewis's re-election as national chair. Carmichael was persuaded to run against him, and after hours of debate lasting long into the night, Carmichael won. A month later, the new SNCC chair was arrested during a protest march in Greenwood, Mississippi. Later that night, he appeared at a rally, telling the crowd, This is the 27th time I've been arrested and I ain't going to jail no more. Carmichael had to wait for the cheers and clapping to subside before continuing. The only way we're going to stop them white men from whooping us is to take over. We've been saying freedom for six years and we ain't got nothing. What we gonna start saying now? What we gonna start saying now is black power. At this point, advanced man Willie Ricks shouted out, "What do you want? Black power!" The crowd yelled back. 
The introduction of the phrase black power took Carmichael's militant style to an entirely new level. In his mind, black power signified little more than the acquisition of political power by black people, but hostile press reports relentlessly equated the phrase with black nationalism, racism, and violence, all of which frightened whites. Carmichael's rise to SNCC leadership and his subsequent introduction of the phrase black power signified a new black assertiveness that badly frightened many whites. The Disintegration of the Movement The political strategy employed by Martin Luther King Jr. from 1955 until his death in 1968 focused on white public opinions. If whites could be persuaded to pay more attention to the oppression of blacks, King believed, then the resulting public disgust would compel the federal government to pass new laws mandating racial justice. The two great accomplishments of this strategy were the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Laws can be ignored, however, and the nation's attention, though capable of producing breakthroughs, can't be held indefinitely. As King himself realized near the end of his life, lasting change requires constant grassroots pressure. The field secretaries of SNCC had been pursuing this difficult, largely thankless work for years. Unfortunately, by the time King finally came to appreciate its worth, the student movement was already falling apart. SNCC had become a pressure cooker, asking staff members to work harder and with fewer resources than was bearable. Resentment grew and radicalism took hold. Most white Americans could support sit-ins, freedom rides, and marches on Washington because these were nonviolent dramatizations of black oppression. But the riots that took place in Watts, Newark, and Detroit between August 1965 and July 1967 were neither dramatizations nor nonviolent. These revolts, along with the appearance of armed groups such as the Black Panthers, deeply frightened white America, and fear rarely inspires racial harmony. King's assassination in Memphis ultimately crippled the civil rights movement, or at least that part of it still committed to nonviolence. The work continued after 1968, but on an ad hoc basis with different groups pursuing disparate agendas. Some leaders, notably Jesse Jackson, turned to electoral politics for the fulfillment of their goals, wrapping themselves in the rhetoric of the movement, but only rarely recreating its remarkable moral energy. At its height, the Civil Rights Movement served as a model of political action for all Americans. It showed how wrongs can be made at least partially right, and how good intentions can overcome institutionalized hate. Its history teaches what should, but not always does, matter in life, and how a great cause can bestow purpose, at the same time it dispenses pain, anger, and disappointment. The assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. crippled the civil rights movement, which had been on a downward trajectory since the Selma to Montgomery march. So, as we close this episode, think care, take some time to think carefully during the fireworks this evening um, to process what the definition of freedom is both for yourself and for people of color in the terms of the type of history they've had. Just just take some time to think about that and let that sink in. Um, and uh, before I sign off, 
Um, I'm going to tell you about where I found the information that I have just read to you. Um, I have found all of that in a book called The Bedside Baccalaureate, a daily primer to refresh your knowledge, edited by David Rubel. That's The Bedside Baccalaureate, a daily primer to refresh your knowledge, edited by David Rubel. Wonderful Reads is a great free reading podcast, isn't it? If you agree, you can support the podcast by sharing it with friends and family, posting about it on social media, joining our Facebook group, and purchasing Sierra Spencer's books. To join our Facebook group, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash nine zero one two seven two zero seven zero four five seven eight zero one backslash that's https semicolon backslash backslash www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash nine zero one two seven two zero seven zero four five seven eight zero one if you would like to purchase our current book, go to https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash dots dash horizon dash collection dash Sierra S-I-E-R-R-A dash Spencer S-P-E-N-C-E-R backslash. The book is purchasable at https semicolon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash thoughts dash horizon dash collection dash Sierra S-I-E-R-R-A dash Spencer S-P-E-N-C-E-R backslash.